Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is great to be with you this morning as we come to worship. Uh, the psalm that we are looking at this morning is Psalm 84. Psalm 84. It is printed in your order of service. You can also turn in your Bibles and follow along there. Psalm 84 is uh, what many commentators and theologians think is a pilgrimage psalm. So uh, from time to time, the people of Israel would gather in Jerusalem at the temple for worship. They would come, they would bring their sacrifices, and the entire nation would be called. And so they would be on pilgrimage. They'd be coming from all different places in the nation of Israel, coming and descending upon Israel, going up. They would say, we're going up to Israel, to the temple, to worship. And so this psalm is one of those psalms that is recounting the, the steps in which they would take. And some think that perhaps they would have sung this song as they were going, as they were going near to the temple, as they were coming to worship. These perhaps would have been the words that were on their lips. This song, a song full of honesty about the world that we live in, a song full of expectation of what they will find when they come to worship. The psalm, Psalm 84, let's follow along. To the choir master, according to the Gitith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God, our King, that is our heart's desire that we would declare that the one who trusts in you is blessed and that we would be those who trust. And so we ask that you would help us this morning, that regardless of what we bring this morning to this place of worship, that you would allow us to trust in you, that we would see you as you are, and that you would minister to us, that you would meet with us, and that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this, or this uh, past week, as uh, I was doing various things around the office, as I was reading over this passage multiple times, as I was preparing the sermon, I was doing so while listening to the sound of the Decemberists. Do, do any of y'all know the band, the Decemberists? Uh, okay, so two, great, um, a few of us. So that's, maybe that's your 
homework for the day to discover the Decemberists. Well, the Decemberists, uh, I was listening to their most recent album that was released earlier this year, and, and oftentimes as I'm working in, in my study and, and going over different things, I have music playing, and, and oftentimes it just becomes white noise, right? I'm not really paying attention to the sound. It's just trying to drown out the beeping of the construction going on outside my window. Um, that's actually a nice sound. I, I like that sound now. But, um, but there was one song in particular as I was listening to the album that caught my attention. I'd listened to it multiple times, but, but I never really paid much attention to it. And, and I heard the chorus repeated multiple times. The chorus goes like this. Everything, everything. Everything, everything. Everything is awful. Multiple times, that's what's said. Everything, 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 that's how it goes, it goes up, is awful. It's basically the antithesis to the Lego song, where everything is awesome. <laughs> For the Decemberists, everything is awful. And then after the chorus, there's this refrain. It says, what's that crashing sound follows us around? That's the sound of all good breaking. Put your fears to rest. You know it's for the best. As a choir of angels sings, everything is awful. It's an awfully bleak way to look at the world, isn't it? Everything is awful. That, that though we may see good around us, may, maybe we might see glimpses of beauty, of loveliness, but, but those things, they cannot bear the weight of the awful of this world. It's a very bleak way of looking at the world. And while probably most of us are hesitant to say everything is awful, we know the sentiment in which this singer would express this, right? We've experienced those times where we look and we, we can feel like everything truly is awful. We've experienced the brokenness of the world, the weight of sin. We've known that feeling, the awfulness, the gray, the dark of the world. The psalmist knows it too. Now, I imagine as we are reading through this psalm, probably none of us thought that the psalmist is talking about awful in the world. In fact, it's full of words of celebration and joy, and yet, yet what we see is they are going on this pilgrimage, as they are going up to the house of the Lord. What we see is that they go through, in verse 6, the valley of Baca. Now, that maybe doesn't mean much to us, but the valley of Baca is this place, we're, we're actually not sure where it is, but... But there's two interesting things about that word baka. You see, the Hebrew word there is the same word that is sometimes used in the historical books to refer to a balsam tree. Now, a balsam tree were trees that only grew in very dry and arid regions. And so the, the psalmist is saying is we're going through this valley that is desolate, that is barren. That this is the way to the Lord, that we're going through a land that is fruitless. But another thing that's interesting about that word baka, the Hebrew word, is that it actually sounds very similar to the verb to weep. In fact, it looks very similar to it. As I was looking at these two Hebrew words, I thought that was the exact same word because there is only a slight difference between them. And so many commentators think that the, the psalmist is using this word for a particular purpose to create, to elicit in our minds, in our imagination, weeping and crying. And perhaps that's what he refers to when they say that as they go through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, that, that this dry and desolate place is full of springs from their tears. You see, the psalmist knew the barrenness of this world. 
The psalmist knew the tears that are elicited when everything feels awful. So what does he do with those? Those tears, that barrenness, what do we do? What do we do with our sin, the sin that that we cannot shake? What do we do with the pain that we experience when relationships have gone bad? What do we do when we see immoral people who are seemingly not affected by their immorality and instead seem to be succeeding despite their immorality? What do we do with death itself? When the darkness of death descends upon us, what do we do? It is easy to heed the advice of the song in those moments, for the song says, lay down your heavy head. It's safer here in bed and let those voices ring. Everything is awful. We could do that. That's how we could respond to the awful of this world. We could simply embrace it in all of its hopeless pessimism. But even to do that, it would still leave us longing and yearning for something more than simply rest. It would leave us longing and and hoping for something that would show us that the good is not all being broken. We would still long and yearn. And that's what the psalmist does. He longs, hear it in verse 2, my soul longs. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. He longs, he's fainting, he's aching to be in the presence of God. It sounds as though these are words being written, being penned by a a hopeless romantic writing to his future bride, doesn't it? I can't wait, I'm aching, I'm dying, I'm longing to be in your presence. But this isn't the words of a future husband, it is the words of the psalmist who knows the awful of the world and longs for the relief that will only come in the presence of God. You see, what the psalmist does is he doesn't remain in the valley of weeping, and he does not remain in the barren. He goes through the barren land, and he goes through the place of weeping, and he arrives at the place of worship because it is there that the longing for the awfulness to to be removed, to be undone, is found. You see, for the psalmist, when he comes to the place of worship, the world of the sadness of the world is replaced with a song of joy. That's how verse 2 ends. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You see, the reason why the psalmist isn't overcome by sadness is because he is in the presence of God. The psalm is contrasting the awfulness of the world with the comfort of God's presence. It's the first thing I want us to see. That is the presence of God that counteracts the awfulness of the world. That's where the psalmist begins in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Regardless of whatever emotions that he is bringing into the place of worship, he sees the place of worship as lovely, as beautiful. Now the locale isn't beautiful in of itself. It's lovely because God is lovely. It's beautiful because he meets with the beautiful God in this place. Now, I imagine that that's probably not the word that we often think of when we think of God. If someone was to ask you, describe God in one word, we would probably go to words like power and might and majesty and grace and justice, right? Those, those, I mean, that's where I go. 
And yet, the Psalms call him lovely and beautiful. That's what David says in Psalm 24, 27, verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You see, when we come into the presence of God in worship, we are not only confronted by his power and his strength, but we are confronted by what C.S. Lewis calls the fair beauty of our Lord. A beauty that is so enticing that the psalmist says in verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That word for doorkeeper, it, it literally means to stand at the threshold. So what the psalmist is saying is he's, he's saying, I would rather be in this place, not of a high or grand position, but, but simply the, the guard of the door, the one who holds the door open. I would rather stand in that place than dwell for thousands of days in the tents of the wicked. He's contrasting these two different places of status. And the psalmist would have known this because this was the sons of Korah. This was their job. This was part of their responsibility at worship. They were the ones who stood by the door, stood by the gate, and they allowed people to come in and to leave. They weren't the priests who were offering the sacrifices. They weren't the high priests who entered into the Holy of Holies once a year. They had the menial job. We don't even know their names. They're simply the sons of Korah. And what do they say? That the world may entice me. The world may call me to some sort of higher status, higher place, but, but to dwell in the house of the Lord, to stand at his door for a day is better than to dwell in the tents of the wicked for a thousand. I mean, the tents of the wicked, right? The, those tents, they would have protected them from the summer sun and from the pouring rain and from the blowing winds. And he says, no, I... I would rather be with my God for one moment than thousands of moments away. Kids, it's kind of like in this Pilgrim's Progress this morning. Right? For those of you in Sunday school, it's in Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim resisted going into the mine, right? Resisted going to the silver because he would rather continue on the way to the Lord than to succumb to give himself over to the things of the world. Riches and wealth, status. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. Remember after he gives his CV of, of his religious achievements? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee amongst the Pharisees. According to the law, I was righteous. I kept it all. And what did he say about all of his status? All these things that the world would have said, Paul is brilliant. He's smart. He's the next guy to come along. He's the leader. He's the one we should follow. What did he say? I count it all as loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is how majestic God's presence is. That's how beautiful he is that one day with him is greater than thousands without. And friends, as wonderful as that truth is, we have more than a moment God, in his grace and his mercy, he gives us more than a day. 
He doesn't confine us to looking through windows or standing at doorways. Instead, he invites us to dwell with him. That's what verse 4 tells us. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. You see, friends, the beautiful thing about the presence of God is that if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in him, then that presence is forever. That we have been assured that we will dwell with Christ forever. That our singing will be forever. That that promise is sure. Jesus told us that he was going away. Why? To prepare a place for us. He was going away to prepare a place for us so when he returned, we would dwell with our God and he would dwell with us. As beautiful as one day in his presence is, it doesn't even compare to the eternity of being in his presence. Or the way that Augustine put it, men long for thousands of days and wish to live here long. Let them despise these thousands of days. Let them long for one day which has neither rising nor setting. One day, an everlasting day, to which no yesterday yields, which no tomorrow presses. This one day be longed for by us all. Augustine is turning his attention to that day. That day when we will dwell with God forever and that, that one moment will turn into an eternity. An eternity when all that is awful will be no more, when we will lay down our heads to rest, but we will rest in perfect peace because we will dwell with God. It is God's presence that comforts us in the midst of the awful. That's why we're not given over to the valley of tears and why instead our sorrow turns into song. It's because of God's presence. But it's also because of the hope of God's protection, the hope of God's protection. That's what we see in verses 11 through 12. The psalmist says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He is a sun and a shield. A sun, what a wonderful comfort that is, isn't it? When we are in the midst of the darkness of the world, that there is a sun so bright that the darkness cannot overcome it. That's actually what we are told in John chapter 1 about Jesus. That he is the light of God. He is the light of the Lord that comes and he shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. What a wonderful comfort that is. That God shines his light into the darkness of this world but also into our own hearts. And this light of life, it keeps coming to us through his word. His word that is a lamp unto our feet that shows us the way that we are to go, that reminds us of the truth and the goodness of our God. So that when we are weighed down by grief, and when we are filled with pain, when sadness and hurt overcome us, when we echo with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? It's in those moments of coldness that the warmth of God's word shines life into our hearts. Those warm words that say things like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those warm words that say, you have been adopted into my family. And because, because of my son, you are now sons and daughters of the king. Those words that, that pierce the darkness of our hearts that give us comfort. 
You see, God protects us from despair, and he gives us hope. He gives us hope through the light of his word because he is the sun. But he's not only the sun, he's also the shield. Now, I need to put this down. Some of y'all were nervous. I was about to spill that on you, I'm sure. God is also our shield. He's our shield. That's what verse 11 told us. He's not only a sun, but also a shield. But I wonder if you'd notice as we're reading along verse 9. It's interesting. Verse 9 says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And so verse 9 is linking this word shield with God's anointed. So what it's saying basically is, O God, behold our shield, our anointed. Look on the face of our anointed who is also our shield. And so the psalmist is linking this theme of God being our shield with his anointed. Now, who is his anointed? Well, in this context, it's the king. You see, the king of Israel was the one who was anointed. He was set apart to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. You see, the king was the earthly manifestation of God's protecting. At least that's what he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be a demonstration to Israel what faithfulness looked like and what it meant to walk with the Lord and and what it was to be protected by God. This is what the king was to embody. We actually see this occurring with the king and the Lord being given similar titles in other places in Scripture. For instance, in the historical books, the king is sometimes called the lamp or the light of Israel. That's pretty interesting. Because that is the same word that is used for God himself. You see, the king was to be the manifestation, the embodiment of what it meant to be a true and faithful Israelite. To represent to the people who God was to protect them. This is one of the reasons why it was so horrible that Saul would not go to war against Goliath. You remember David and Goliath. We remember how Goliath, this young shepherd boy, he comes and he thwarts this giant. But, but don't forget, before that, Saul, the king, where was he? He was far away, right? Like he was far from the lines and he's wringing his hands in worry and fear. What is going to happen, right? Until this little shepherd boy comes. The king was the one who was to be the champion of Israel. He was the one who was supposed to go on to the battlefield and defend and protect, and yet he did not do that. But we know that it wasn't just simply Saul who failed, but every king after Right? Every king in the line of David, some of them were better than others. Some were good, some were bad, but every single one of them failed at one place or another. Every one of them failed to perfectly represent God, and none of them fully protected the people. All but one. All but one. You see, Jesus is the capital A anointed one. Jesus is the king that all the other kings have been waiting for. Jesus is the anointed one who protects his people in ways that no other king ever could. Because it is only Christ who protects us from the judgment that we were deserving. It is only Jesus who shields us from the wrath that should have been poured on us. And he does this. He guards us by freeing us from the bonds of our sins. And he does it all by giving of himself. Jesus protects us by taking our punishment upon himself. And so, friends, when we look at the awfulness of this world and we wonder where is our shield and where is our protector, 
We don't look to the world for the answer. We don't look to ourselves. We look to the cross. Because in the cross, we see the awfulness of the world giving way to the power of God. You see, it is in the cross that we see Christ, the anointed one, shielding us with his broken body and protecting us with his poured out blood. This is why we can sing as the psalmist does, regardless of what we bring this morning. Regardless of of pain or, or tear, regardless of grief or celebration, regardless of what we bring in this morning, we can sing as the psalmist does, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. See, this is why we can trust in God. Because what he does is good and right. Because what he gives is exactly what we need. He gives himself. See, friends, this psalm, it wonderfully counteracts the awful and the gray that we see, that we experience. And I have to tell you that that this week, as I read this psalm, as I studied it, it, it reminded me of the beauty of God. It reminded me of how wonderful God is to his people that he would give us these words that don't ignore the awful and the gray of the world, but counteract it with color and beauty. It reminded me of this room in the St. Louis Art Museum. There's this cavernous room. Every time we went to the museum, every time I went to the museum, I, I would have to go to this one particular room whether I was with Cat or with the kids or just by myself, I would go to this room, and, and I love to go to this room because it had the works of Gerhard Richter. Gerhard Richter is a post-German, uh, post-World War II German artist. And Gerhard Richter spent many of his years living in uh, Soviet-controlled East Germany until he fled to the West, and so many of his paintings are gray and cold and dark. And so you walk into this room, it's cavernous, it's, it's giant. It's far bigger than this room. And on the one wall, there are three panels. This is one of Richter's works. It's called Gray Mirror. There are three massive panels of, of gray. And they, they are exactly what the t- title describes, a gray mirror. You can look at them and you see your reflection. You see your, your face, your hands. You see people walking behind you, the bench in the middle of the room. You can see all of those things, and you know it is you, but everything is muted because it is gray. It is cold. It is dark. And I imagine that if you spent too long looking at it, it would be very unsettling. But as you turn away from the gray, as you turn away from the dark, And you walk across the opposite side of the room. There's another work of Richter's. There is is my favorite painting by Gerhard Richter. It's my favorite painting in the entire museum. Rembrandt is wonderful and Picasso is great, but, but I'll take Betty. That's what it's called, Betty, any day. It's this beautiful painting of his daughter. And she's sitting there on a chair and her head is turned away so you can't see her face. And Her beautiful blonde hair is pulled up in a bun. She's wearing this this, uh, cream-colored coat with beautiful red flowers on it. And in the background, what she is turning and looking at is the gray of the panels. 
But in contrast to the gray is the beauty of the color. And as you look at it, you can't help but notice the gray and the cold, but you see the color and the beauty, and there is hope, and there is comfort. And friends, that is exactly what the psalm gives us. The psalm, it does not ignore the pain, and it does not say there is no valley of weeping, and it does not tell us to ignore the bareness. It says that even in the midst of those things, there is comfort in the presence of God. It tells us that there is hope in the power of his protection. The psalm, it bids us come. Allow our sorrow to turn to song because we enter into the presence of God and we know the protection of his son. Amen. Our God and our King, we do thank you that you do meet with us, that you have not left us to ourselves or to this world, but that you yourself entered into the brokenness and experience the awful for yourself. Lord Jesus, you took on flesh and you walked amongst us. And you have, you have been tempted in every way that we have you experienced the miseries of this world, and yet you did not sin. And so you have the power and the grace and the love to bring the comforting presence of our God, to powerfully protect us through your life. And for that, we thank you. And to ask that you would remind us of that comfort that you would give us the courage to walk in your protection, that we would know your grace and your glory, that we would know your presence and protection today and tomorrow and all of our days until you come or until we go to be with you. Be with us and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.